the world is wide and broad. And no matter what you've learned when you were in undergrad or grad school, and you've been told sort of, you know, your niche or your corner of the world is materials characterization or it's catalysis or it's looking at uh, one esoteric measurement for specific proteins or something. That's just your training. You know, that's what you trained on. But you don't have to be that. You are not fated in some way. You don't have to spend the next 30 years doing that if it's not your utter passion. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the It's Material World podcast. I'm your host, Puni. I have my co-host, David, joining me today. How's it going, David? It's early morning for you. Yeah, we're going to do lots of early mornings now that I'm on West Coast <laughs> time. But no, it's been good. Just getting settled at work. So getting back into the grind of things. But overall, very good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Traveling a little bit. So we've been operating on different time zones and it's been a little bit of a challenge to work with the East Coast, Central Time Zone, and West Coast, but we're making it happen. And for this episode, we brought on Mike Tarselli from Tetra Science, which is a Boston-based company that you know provides a data cloud solution for accelerating life sciences R&D. And he was really an amazing guest. He was a podcast host himself. He's the scientific director and has chemistry background. So he was able to put on a lot of hats for us from the startup side to really discuss kind of all things Tetra science and kind of the importance of implementing these data cloud solutions, this technology within the materials industry, within the life sciences industry, where that technology isn't as present from like the software side. So I just want to see kind of what was your favorite part of the episode or maybe a favorite tidbit that he mentioned during the discussion. Yeah, my favorite part was he gave a view of what it would look like. So the idea of the company is to help automate data collection, aggregation, and cleaning. And so in this way, it will be more efficient. And so in the end, he gives a great, like, almost analog to, oh, it's a newspaper. Like you have someone curating the data behind it, but then you read the newspaper and then take away what you will from the data. And so I thought that was a very interesting way to go about it. And it shows that we'll still need people to interpret it, but the way that we get the data can be a lot less manual and a lot more streamlined. And we talk about regulations at the end of the episode too, where now you have to report data if you are getting government funds. And so this whole centric idea of we need data, we need to report data, but what is the best, fastest way to do it when maybe you're not the most literate person in data science to do all of this? So I thought that was a very interesting vision that he proposed. What about yours? Yeah, he talks about the DMTA cycle, you know, design, make, test, and analyze. And so just like you mentioned, the design side, that's usually knowledge-based and comes from people directly. It's harder to really accelerate that time span, but the make and test to the analysis cycle, like that can be accelerated and then you really speed up the innovation cycle. And so that was a really cool way of putting things. And I thought that one of my favorite parts of of the episode was really like his backstory. He has that chemistry background, got his PhD and was heavily in the pharma sector, right? But purely due to the hiring cycle and recession at that time, he kind of had to pivot in his career and his journey. And that's how he ended up culminating all of his past experiences into this chief scientific officer role at this data cloud company for life sciences. So it was really cool there how 
initially how he wanted to be a doctor, right? And then now fast forward 20, 25 years and he's in a different path, but he's still making a positive impact and he's making kind of that research and discovery cycle more efficient for other people. So it's just a really cool story and he's very passionate about what he does. It motivated me and it was inspiring to me. So that was kind of my favorite part. Did you have anything else before we jump right in? No, he did at the end ask us a question. So (laughs) that doesn't happen very often. So stay tuned for that. For sure. For sure. All right, let's get right into it. Hello, everyone. So for today's episode, we are super excited to welcome Dr. Mike Tarselli, Chief Scientific Officer of Tetra Science a Boston-based company that operates a research and development data cloud for life sciences. Since earning his PhD in chemistry from UNC Chapel Hill, Mike has had a long and varied career as a chemist, scientific director, and even a podcast host. His expertise has helped Tetra Science grow 10 times in size and 60 times in revenue. So we're very excited to bring you on the show. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thank you very much, Puneet. Thank you, David. Yeah, just to start us off, could you tell us more exactly what the Scientific Data Cloud is? Because I'm sure a lot of us have heard about the cloud, but how does that specifically apply to science? And why is it a valuable tool for industry researchers? Gosh, yeah, the Scientific Data Cloud. First thing first, I'll say that I don't know of another Scientific Data Cloud outside of ours, so I'll even call it Tetra Scientific Data Cloud. And I'll say that this is a long time coming. So if you think about every single thing you interact with on a day-to-day basis, where you check your bank balance, how you order takeout, how you you know get a flight arranged, or how you check your taxes even, nearly all of it is now done through your laptop or your mobile phone. And it's just about never something where you actually look at a piece of downloaded software that you install on your desktop and say, this is me using the you know, TurboTax installed app, or this is me using the Uber run on command line or something. However, in biosciences and materials, in physical sciences and chemistry, this is very rigor. You still have to use oftentimes an installed version of a program. You still have to use, you know, something that you literally put on a server or on a desktop and say, this is my license or seat of an installed software. And the update packages are fairly slow, you know, often measured in months to years, not in sort of hours to days as multiple as most cloud things are. So we see a great opportunity to digitize. And what does that mean? That means we want to move everything to the cloud as a first principle. So we don't actually have an on-prem version of Tetra Science. You can't go download tetrascience.com to a desktop. You can only run it in the cloud. And we see this world where you can transit data. So when you run an experiment in the lab, right, whether you're doing material hardness or you're doing an endpoint for a biological assay or you're doing a, a chemical characterization, right? You either generate a file or else the instrument says something to some software (laughs) says, hey, here's my reading or look, I'm done. Or here's the different codons and repeats you have in your genomic sequence. That has to go somewhere, right? In the on-prem world, that would stay on literally a beige Hewlett Packard PC that's standing next to the desk in very 1995 fashion. But in our world, we would hope that that comes right off the instrument, gets right up to the cloud, gets unpacked and analyzed, and that data flows somewhere. So flow, the metaphors are always about water and pipes, right? So that data goes into dashboards or into Tableau or into Spotfire or into an electronic lab notebook, somewhere where somebody can use it immediately and not have to worry about this weird manual translocation of taking it off the instrument, sometimes on the USB, jamming it into their host desktop, doing some more typing, putting that somewhere. You know, it's 2023, where's my flying car? We should be on the cloud. So 
I know that this is already implemented in several under other industries. I'm just wondering if there's any numbers or like statistics about how much that can kind of accelerate innovation or, you know, make the workplace more efficient in terms of that test to analysis time period. Sure. Let's expand that even more and just call it a DMTA cycle, right? Design, make, test, analyze. So in terms of the design make, well, you're probably not going to accelerate design because that comes out of people or that comes out of, you know, deep learning algorithms or what have you. Make and test. Well, heck, we've seen people who use our product say that they can accelerate what used to take 40 or 50 scientists and their time down to five running it. They've also said that they can eliminate 90% of errors, several other factoids that you can read in our white papers or, or on our website. I, I won't beleaguer that here. But I'll simply say that you can imagine make and test, i.e., when you run an experiment and when you capture an analysis about that and when you have to send that data somewhere to then make new catalysts or to make new libraries or whatever, well, that transit time is greatly reduced because you don't have to wait for the human in the loop to say, aha, I have to move this file. Now I have to open it and reprocess it, waiting, waiting, waiting on a, you know, 256 megabyte RAM machine. <laughs> and then, you know, this gets returned to some paper report that I print out and then put on my boss's desk and say, hey, what happened with this thing? That's very 20th century. So let's go to the 21st century where you have near real-time capture of that, where it flows into a dashboard, where you interrogate that against all of your historical assays. You can literally overlay curves or overlay spectra and just say, this is all the things we found. What should we do? So when we talk about the data cloud, one of the biggest like benefits is the idea that you will have all this extra data. And so, of course, Tetra Sciences has like segments of different customers. Is there ever a goal where you would anonymize the data and start to give it to your other customers? And that way you would give more or because a lot of engineering firms are so sensitive about their IP that unfortunately it's going to be siloed for each company. But for that company, it will be much faster. So that's a that's an interesting and a tricky question. Let me take off my my chief scientific and knowledge officer hat and put on my hat as our head of quality and compliance. <laughs> Another hilarious role. I will say that it's really important though. Our policies and procedures indicate that your data is yours and that you don't get it admixed with other companies' data. What does that mean? We don't specifically say to, let's just say, large pharma A and biotech B, you know, want to learn something about each other's data. We can't just say, hey, here's some open access. That would be very much in violation of every single policy we have. So there is some siloization, but silo has this unfortunate context of being locked away. We still can read how many pipes are they using, you know, what large files are coming through, what some of the metadata on those files. And in that way, you can anonymize some of that usage data, and you can also genericize what they try to do. So, you know, if, if a large pharma over here and another large pharma are doing similar scientific use cases, or they're doing similar formulations testing to give a materials bent, we can say to them, hey, we're seeing common trends between your usage. You guys should think about this and talk to one another. That's not in violation of any of our principles, but we can't up and share files from one place to another. That would be that would be wrong. Makes sense. And I appreciate you putting on the, the QA hat for us too. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so this technology seems very useful to really any company, especially in the material space. So what has kind of stood in the way of implementing these data cloud tools in, in scientific research and why hasn't that innovation happened sooner? Sure. There's a concept in scientific business analysis and project management called the golden triangle. You guys have probably heard of it, but there's three things that control the speed of anything, right? And it's it's time, money, and resources. So time seems to be apropos, right? We're all just kind of coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
vaccines exist, people are getting back to somewhat new normal of their lives. But they've started to realize the real value of the scientific cloud and the you know value of remote work and being able to get your data anywhere. So that the time is the right time, right? Now, money and resources, it's not cheap to do a change management exercise. It's not cheap to say, hey, that last 30 years of us buying on-prem software and, and various versions of things is going to have to come to a screeching halt and we're going to have to all go cloud, you know, that might cost some money. And then resources. Do we even have the right people? Can you take people who, and this is no denigration whatsoever to the amazing scientists, data scientists, and scientific engineers who have worked on this for their entire careers. You know, they've obviously gotten drugs out to market. They've obviously built solar cells and things. They have done amazingly with the tool set they've had to date. However, you may actually need a more data literate, what we call <laughs> affectionately inside cyborgs, get it, SCI borgs, <laughs> people who know both science and tech workflows and can best recommend how scientific data moves from its raw form to its processed and analyzed form to pipelines to destinations. That's a very rare breed of person. And that kind of person is needed in order to move this ahead and to understand, you know, hey, large company X. You've got these 13 instruments producing very different data, but they all have to be analyzed here. Well, maybe we should put some commonalities into how those are structured, captured, and processed. So that that's the kind of challenges we face. And so to your point, David, it would be great to have this all consistent and everybody to say, let's go ahead the same way. But it's just change management is hard. And, and this is likely for us. We're in this for the looking on years to decades, not on the weeks to months. And so... With that, one of the things about engineering, I feel like, is that you can automize a lot of it, like you're saying, like the workflows of a certain tool, like an XRF or XRD, like you can automate that. But one thing I find about engineering is that a lot of the observations can be very quality-based or quantitative, where a engineer with understanding makes an observation about a certain thing. So going forward, what is Tetra Science's kind of philosophy about the combination of the hard data and then also things that we will just have to have people to look at and give understanding based off what they know about the science? Sure. Let's separate out a tiny bit, um, be philosophically, the strategy aspect from the operations. So strategically, yeah, you need humans to do certain things that a machine can't contextualize. A human can look at a NMR sample and see what the repetition or the, you know, syndiotacticity of a polymer is like that. A human can look at a flow cytometry sample and say, oh, well, clearly the dead cells are over here and these populations are do-do-do because they've seen so many and they've learned the pattern recognition. To your point about XRF and XRD, a human can look at scattering patterns or at microscopy and they can say, hey, look, I've seen these features before, and they can grok intuitively when this field is slightly blurry and white and it's over here in this corner and has this depth. Well, it's probably going to be this. I don't think machines are there yet. So you're right. You do need some level of human interpretation. That's the strategy. Operationally, you can have the instrument do a lot of things and the cloud and the, the sort of localized network of the company do a lot behind the scenes. So just because a human is needed to interpret data, it does not mean a human has to manually start and stop a machine. The human doesn't also have to say, let's move that file to here. <laughs> That's something we've been doing for 40 years. We can do that again. A human doesn't have to say, interpret this, unpack it, and move it to this format where I can easily see it. Think about producing a newspaper, right? If you produce a newspaper, you as the end consumer, the end user, your UI is opening up pages of a newspaper and reading headlines and stories. You don't have to see the raw copy of the journalist do that. 
You don't need to see where the picture was taken. You don't have to see, you know, all the fact-checking and stuff to win. You're just happy to get the end report and, and to learn from it. In that same way, you could imagine a scientist in, say, five years' time opening up their version of a newspaper, so Tableau, Spotfire, R, and saying, look at all this amazing materials characterization data that came in. Float in at me. I'll interpret them. I'll tell you what happened in the experiment. But the machine will do all the processing in the background to make that for me. That's the vision we're going towards. Yeah, I love that newspaper analogy. So that's such a radically different way that we do things now. So how do you think the R&D sector will respond to this attractive shift where it's not so much about maybe wondering about the test setup and if things can be so much standardized and then all the data automized, how will the sector like respond to basically a whole paradigm shift in how we consider data? Totally awesome question. I think that there is a little bit of, of nuance, and then I'll, I'll unpack it a tiny bit. First, let's talk about sectors in terms of, you know, different verticals. So the biopharma sector, the materials sector, the, you know, conglomerates and consumer goods sectors, each of these has different time, money, resources to approach the situation and different incentives to act. In fact, there's some that have almost negative incentives, pharma and baby defense being two, because in those, you have highly regulated and very you know, observed and rigorous characterizations. You can't move as fast. Whereas perhaps in material science, it's a little bit more open in certain cases, maybe not at Tesla. <laughs> However, at other locations, at Oak Ridge National Labs or at an open source database for material science, you can see more of this sharing and you can see more of this open sourcing of data. So it may be a little easier. So there's industry by industry change management burdens. And now let's talk about the sort of generational shifts. I am certainly not here to be ageist. I am definitely mid-career. I'm definitely past 40. <laughs> I was raised in a world where I definitely installed Windows 95 on things and even Windows, you know, <laughs> versions before that. Definitely used Prodigy and AOL in my time. That said, there is definitely an appetite for people who are just now coming out of graduate school and postdoc or maybe in the very first five years of their career who have been raised on Python and R, who have been raised on investigating their own data or, you know, opening up open source DBs or, you know, maybe even using in certain larger labs an ELN during their undergrad. That's crazy. That's an amazing change and a shift. And we hope to capitalize on that by saying, hey, you know, you can probably use what you are starting to learn in academia and your first job and bring that through to keep that digitalization and that cloud first mindset going. And then maybe that will catalyze the shift to the rest of the organization. I'm just going to ask you to maybe put on your marketing and sales hat now, just for just for one question. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Can I please be a scientist? <laughs> no. Soon, very soon, very soon. But I, this has just been something that I've been curious about. But you mentioned finding that personnel, even at that company, right, that has kind of that bridge, right, with that cyborg, right? Yeah, great word. How do you find that person or, you know, how do you get an, a good understanding of a company would be like the right fit? for this data cloud technology that Tetra Sciences provide. You're kind of going to laugh when you hear this, but it's not so much we find them, they almost find us, which is great. How does the old expression say, you know, when the student is ready, the master appears or some such. <laughs> it's almost like when people become extra frustrated with the way they are encountering organizational friction at their company, or they really need to automate something and they're against a wall, or they just say, I have to operate a core facility and I have 200 spectrometers all feeding me, and I can't, as a person, literally run around to each and install software and maintain and get the interpretation, help, help, help. And they look around, sometimes online, sometimes through networks of friends, sometimes through our, our white papers and brochures, and they say, hey, there's a cloud that could work with this. 
you know, that could basically take my work and reduce it to a tenth. I, the core facility director or scientist, won't lose my job. I'm still needed to interpret things, to set up new automation, to pioneer new instruments. But at least the kind of scut work of moving files around and doing integrations and keeping file servers up to date. Like, who wants that to be their career after seven years of grad school? Not me. Um, I can automate that and someone else can take that. So so the marketing hat on says there is this phenotype. We, we call it a, a persona called a scientific data engineer whose literal job it is to take data in raw form and transform it so the rest of the org can use it. That poor person needs help. And when they find us, we can help. I love that. So the pain point was already there. You know, you're just providing the solution. So yeah, that's a, a natural fit. We have medicine. The patient is sick and we can help them. That's a great way to operate a business. So makes sense. And now we'll ask you to put your scientific hat back on. Sure. I really appreciate you, your versatility there. But Tetra Science currently works with mostly pharmaceutical and, and life sciences companies. And so do you envision that these data cloud tools can be used for other industries, you know, more engineering centric work? Or are there any limitations that would prevent other fields from being able to implement this data cloud? You know what? I'm, I'm an executive at our company, so I don't want to give forward-looking statements that, you know, bother any investors or whatnot. So I'll simply say that operationally and technically, there is nothing that prohibits other industries or other types of scientists from using it. If your machine outputs a file in our current technical platform, we're recording this in 2023, we have an upper limit because of our, of our backend cloud engineering and how it lands there of about five terabytes coming in as a file size. And we have, you know, some limited amounts of our subject matter expertise in that, you know, the cyborgs we've hired to date are more biopharma tailored. That said, we also have physicists we've hired. We also have material scientists we've hired. We also have other people in the mix that can interpret from other instruments. And biopharma needs as they get towards the manufacturing end of the cascade, right? When you put a vaccine in your arm or when you take a pill, you're not taking something that's from an R&D lab. That would be not a great idea. <laughs> you want something that's rigorous and process tested and QA'd and it's in a perfect final formulation that they know will have a perfect AUC and distribution into your tissues and they know when you'll excrete it. You know, they've got all that down. To do that, it needs to be rendered to an absolute process, right? It needs to be rendered to a manufactured good. At that point, you do have material science in the mix, right? You have rheometry and rheology being done on polymer adsorbents that are, you know, being tested for release. You have people testing excipients, which are the not drug parts of a vitamin or a pill, right? You need those so they dissolve in your stomach or so they distribute somewhere or so that, you know, they don't provoke certain reactions in certain people or so, you know, you can actually digest them. There's casein and vitamins and magnesium sulfate and things. You need material science to do that. And so many of the instruments we end up supporting, dynamic light scattering, particle sizing, hardness testing, dissolution, these are material science instruments, guys, just being used on drugs. As you are probably seeing, the door is open for larger engineering and material sciences challenges in the future. However, our central focus has to be while we're, while we're trying to sort of build up this industry on biopharma where we can specially differentiate. I hope that wasn't too winding. I kind of came back to your point at the end. Sorry. <laughs> Let's say that there's a new recent graduate and they have the choice of working in actual biopharma or working for a company like yours. Uh, what would you say you've enjoyed about the work that you do at Tetra Science? And then why do you think that differentiates itself from maybe being a chemist like your previous experience was? Sure. I'll start this off by saying long ago, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was an undergrad, 
it was actually in the 20th century. <laughs> anyway, when that was the case, I was told sort of at go that my career options were pretty much, do you want to become a professor or a teacher like us? Or do you want to go maybe into industry and be in pharma or, you know, in, in defense or materials or Raytheon or what have you? Those were kind of the options, right? Mm -hmm. You didn't have much else. Later on in sort of the ensuing 20 to 25 years, there became this third way. This is a very common thing in many <laughs> Near Eastern religions is the third way, the path, you know, that, that, that somebody determines for themselves. And that third way indicated, what if you could genericize your skills in science, you know, being curious, thinking deeply about a problem, getting data to support your assertions, showing it visually, being able to present it, you know, rational argument and debate, you know, review. These are common and translatable skills that go into this world of data plus science, right? I'll be honest, I didn't really see it for myself until let's call it 2008, 2009, when it was sort of the depths of the recession and I was having a real hard time getting a classic pharma job. Out of my postdoc, I applied to 160, 170 jobs. And I got rejected from nearly all of them, not because I'm a horrific candidate who didn't have papers. <laughs> I did. I came out of good schools, but um, it was just not a great hiring time for that classic type of scientist. It was at the bottom of a curve. So because of that, I said, well, what else is there out there? You know, And the answer was I could look at long reams of data. I was the person who maintained our compound inventory in both my undergrad and my postdoc. I did the ordering. I did a lot of our data aggregation anyway, and this was with USB drives, putting it in places so people get it or starting up and digitizing records. So I was already kind of getting there. And then I started actually behind the scenes doing some work with scientific data on Wikipedia, on some open source publications, on some sort of um, open source modeling projects. And then in my first year or two at Novartis as a actual scientific informatics person working with data to look at ELNs and look at what people actually make and look at retrosynthetic engines with MIT. This got me on the path of saying this third way exists. It exists and it's growing and it's growing exponentially fast because everyone's going to need it. Indeed, just now in 2023, Jan 2023, you know, just a day ago, the US government and the FDA announced that, hey, look, if you're going to support a grant for something in our space, for an R1 or one of the large grants, you must have a data retention plan and a data processing plan. That means everyone who comes out of school now is going to have to be data literate if they want to play in professorships, biopharma, engineering, industry. Everyone's going to have to know where their data is, how to interact with it, how to process and play with it. So to your point, what should I tell a new graduate? If you haven't learned something about where your data exists, playing with it with Python or R or Tableau, where open data sources are, how you get trustworthiness in it, how you scope out errors or you know falsehoods, how you do QA on that data, how you use it to assert your assumptions, then that's really good skill set to learn. Maybe take the summer and take a couple courses from IBM or AWS and, and figure that out because that's going to be the preponderance of careers in the next 10 years. Does that help? I hope that helps. <laughs> that, that really helps. And I guess one thing that you said before, there is something else that the government published for all the grants that you have to post with your papers, all the data behind it. And so we're being driven to this data-centric world. And so I guess a question for you as your goal to be a hub of data science and the actual data of the experiments, how are we ever going to maintain all these records as it grows to terabytes and terabytes? I know from my past experience, when you go to the cloud, you write and read all this data, your physical hardware actually runs out quite fast. And so it's up to like cents for each gigabyte of data you read and write. How can we possibly like scale this 
to where now the entire scientific community has to be on board. That is a fantastic question and one that will take me a little bit of time to unpack. So I, I hope you guys are, are in, grab a snack. We got be a five-minute explanation. <laughs> so sorry. We're in the zettabyte era. What does zettabyte mean? A zettabyte is larger than giga, larger than tera, larger than peta, larger than exa. It's literally like, I think it's 10 to the 21st. It's, it's a lot. The entire internet was weighed. It's the wrong word. <laughs> but um, massed, measured, something back in 2020. And they said in 2020 that it was roughly 30 zettabytes was the internet. So everything they could find, everything they could calculate, everything that was there. It's been predicted by more than just me, by PricewaterhouseCoopers and Deloitte and a lot of other orgs, AWS, that we're literally going to 5x that. And that's going to be to about 150 zettabytes as the whole and utter data corpus of humanity in guess how long? Answer is by 2027. So we have 30 <laughs> years to make 30 zettabytes and five years to make another 120. That is craziness. That is literally building four more internets worth of data on top of what we already have in the next four years of our lives. You know, before our data system would have graduated college. <laughs> That's a big lift. So how do we do that and how do we track that? Well, look at technological scaling and then look at that against rate of adoption. So what do I mean by technological scaling? If you look at something like Moore's Law, right? Gordon Moore, famous from Intel, uh, mentored Andy Grove, who was also then famous at Intel. He came up with that law that, you know, every couple of years, the transistors on a chip would double, right? And it was pretty true for him for about 20 years until, you know, we started to hit rational limits, but then we went microscale and it started becoming more true. So that same thing drives down costs. So David, to your point, it's cents per gigabyte. That's not going to be cents per gigabyte forever. As data goes up and as storage goes down in cost, that price will come down and it will come down faster than the rate of adoption. So let's say it costs 10 cents to store a terabyte on the cloud right now. In two years, that'll probably be one cent. Not three cents, not five cents, one cent. It'll come down by orders of magnitude, not actually on a linear scale. So people will be able to have this be cost effective for them because it'll be in companies' best interests, you know, not to actually have people go, oh God, a terabyte, should I put it in the cloud? No, they want to drive adoption to that. At the same time, rate of adoption is really the problem. It's getting scientists and data scientists and even bench scientists and engineers to be comfortable with accessing their data there, keeping track of it, et cetera. But this same kind of technological shift has happened before, right? People have gone from not keeping track of things to writing on clay tablets when they have an agricultural harvest, you know, 2000 years ago. They went from not having data, you know, for their home goods or income or for what a landlord would charge them to having paper first, you know, let's call this 500 to 1,000 years ago, and to having computerized systems that handled things like their taxes and data or their home finances or, or even like utility billing maybe 40, 50 years ago. So you see this adoption. It takes time, right? I'm not going to say everyone's going to jump to the cloud right this minute and they're all going to know what to do. But in three or four years, people are going to evolve the knowledge and the needs to figure out how to track it all. It's just me being very future leaning. Maybe you'll get a monthly data report. Maybe you'll have like data hygiene, like you have health scores or credit scores. Maybe you'll have a, you know, David and Puneet's data score. You know, hey, Puneet, you've got 52 gigabytes sitting over here with this service doing X. And you've got 75 exabytes over here doing Y, and maybe you should look at that. I'm not sure, but that seems like a thing if it ever gets regulated like a utility. So I think that humans are going to get over this challenge, and they're going to adapt to it. AI will be part of that. Better data engineering will be part of that. And then reporting and use will be part of that. Does that help? 
Yeah, that was awesome. That was super comprehensive. And that led me to just another question about Tetra Science specifically, and maybe this is just a lack of awareness, but when I interned at Solve, right, I had like a downloadable software to analyze my differential scanning calorimetry results. DSC, baby. Yeah, DSC. (laughs) And so, and we've talked about XRD, XRF, right? So I'm just wondering for different equipment and then the, the results from that, do you have to create customizable solutions for each company, for each type of test? Or what does that solution look like when you're working with these different like life sciences companies? Yeah, let's um, let's go by the Pareto principle, which you've probably heard before. It's the 80-20 rule, right? Yep. And the classic formulation of the rule, it's that you know, 80% of the people do 20% of the work, but I don't want to go that that negative. Let's call <laughs> it the 80-20 rule of you know how to fit this to purpose. So in this case, it's for 80% of the, we'll call them scientific workflows or use cases, we want to try to genericize. We want to say, hey, most large companies we've seen doing DSC, take the traces, they store them as a file, they see it as an in and out with you know relative humps of exotherms, et cetera, and they stash it in this format for fun. Let's call it a, a .csv or a .txt. It moves to this database. People open it in whatnot, GraphPad or some downstream software or whatever, and then we show it to them in this downstream system. If we can genericize that type of workflow and then ask large companies, hey, is this how you do it? And then eventually, when smaller biotechs or smaller engineering firms come in business, they will ask, what's best practice in this space? And they won't say, oh, it's you download an app and you do this and you, you know, tweak it manually. They'll say, oh, well, all the large companies are using this transform from Tetra Science. We should probably do that too. That's our hope is to catalyze that flywheel and then to make that the standard. However, Burrito Principle has that 20% kicker, right? There will always be workflows out there that are so highly customized or that are so complex or that rely on, let's call it, you know, legacy instrumentation or a very specific workflow that you can't tell anyone else, et cetera. And for those, there's going to have to be some custom engineering. We can't get away from it. I think that's the challenge every software company, every ELN company, every, you know, microscopy vendor all faces is what can you do for the 80% that are consistent? And what do you have to do for the 20% that are always going to use it in this other way? And then the, the idea is over time to shrink that 20, <laughs> move some of those cases into the 80%, right? And then make room for other other 20% cases to come in. That's just technological evolution. Makes sense. So generally speaking, you you try to create that general workflow based on what most people do, but then there is maybe that subset where you do have to kind of create- Edge cases. Yeah, the custom solutions. It's both. And I, I would challenge anybody to say if there's an industry out there where that's not the case, you know, even in something so stable like- banking or, you know, retail or something, there's still going to be somebody who says, no, I want my packages to arrive on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday in perfect packaging. And I want this to have this stamp and date on it. And I want this to, there's always going to be this customized case in any genericized workflow. And so you've gone from conducting research as a chemist to now helping others do their work more efficiently. And so you mentioned, right, like sometimes it was almost out of like necessity based on where you were at in industry, the economic kind of like hiring cycle. But how challenging was it to ultimately like take that jump, you know, and make that switch in in your mentality? And how was that like fulfilling? You know, why did you continue to follow down this path? If you'll allow me, I'm going to go very far back. And I'm going to say when I was five, I wanted to be a doctor. And that's a medical doctor, like the kind who helps sick babies and old people and, you know, get them better and treats them. And I really, really wanted this very badly. I went to school as a pre-med and then I took a course as an EMT. 
an emergency medical technician, right? Go on site, help with, you know, ambulance runs, help backboard people, you know, work in a hospital at night, you know, get people who come in with like, you know, facial abrasions and crazy sicknesses and uh, all sorts of wacky things you see. And I realized very quickly that when I saw blood, I passed out sometimes. Um, (laughs) That's not positively correlated with a successful career in medicine, as it turns out. So I had to make my first pivot when I was even, gosh, I don't know, 17, 18. And I had to say, well, what can I do to help people with science and still be in medicine without literally touching and, you know, making stitches or abrasions or taking blood pressures? And the answer there was, well, I'll just look around for something like biology, you know, that helps people still make assays or look at cells or whatever. And that'll be fulfilling. Three or four years into that, I said, you know, I really don't love my biology courses, but I love seeing the structures underneath them, realizing how they're made, what they do, et cetera. So I made another pivot. After two and a half years of biology curriculum, I pivoted and did a chemistry degree in two years. I do not recommend that either. <laughs> also not possibly correlated with a happy life. It's a, it's a lot of coursework all in one small smash of time, plus lab work, right? So I learned what it was like to be a grad student pretty darn fast. And then I reached yet another glass ceiling. I took my first pharma job literally right out of college with a company I'd interned with, Millennium Pharmaceuticals. Doesn't exist anymore, but got aggregated into Takeda. So while I was there, I would go into these project meetings and people would say, well, listen, you can't really be in these, you know, Friday afternoon strategy meetings till you have a PhD. And I went, okay. So I, I had to go get a PhD. So I, I went and got one, came back and said, where's my job? And they said, well, we really would prefer you at a postdoc. I went, okay, go get a postdoc. So I went to go get a postdoc. So at this point, right, I'm 10 years removed from my dream of being a medical doctor. <laughs> And I'm pretty darn deep into this investment in a pharma career. So I did this and I went from UNC to the Scripps Research Institute. So not, not a terrible school, got a nature paper, was happy with that. And then basically was told, hey, look, it's the recession. We can't hire you back. Okay, guess we're pivoting again. So I, <laughs> I took a job at a contract research organization, which at the time I thought was, you know, a little bit of a weird career move, but it ended up being very, very useful. And I'll get to that in a minute. But um, I went from there to a startup, also useful because right now I'm in a startup. And then I went at when that startup sort of went from a high, high height to a, you know, ran out of money and needed to do something else for money. Um, I was told develop services, develop products, develop alliances with internal business. So it's sort of a learn as you go. You know, it isn't that I chose necessarily the career of being in, in science plus business. It happened to me. And I had to decide at that time. Do I fight it? And do I say, no, no, I'm a scientist at at my core and I absolutely have to keep going at the bench? Or do I embrace what's happening and say, roll with it, you know, learn in nights and weekends, read more papers, read more books, go get another degree, you know, and and I I chose the latter. So it's now 2014-ish. All this weird experience that I've aggregated has led me to a job in information systems at Novartis which um, actually worked out pretty well. I started really learning what kind of deep learning and data sets are we collecting? Why are we supporting this? Why does this license cost this? How do we distribute it in an enterprise model? How do we start moving to cloud? How do we start processizing things? That's not a word. Um, So we can make it work better for scientists across the board. And people would invite me to these calls where they'd say, hey, we need somebody to help with this synthetic biology workflow. And I'd say, "Uh, what's synthetic biology? And they'd say, just go to the meeting and learn. Or, you know, what's what's going on with this materials characterization workflow for farm formulations and, you know, late stage dissolution? And I'd be like, what are those? And they'd <laughs> say, just go and learn. So a lot of it's just been Puneet David. It's been on the job learning that transformed itself. And then, you know, here I am in a role that integrates contract research experience, 
business projection strategy, science, technology, information systems. It is is literally a sort of dream construction role that I did not know I was aiming at, but it's working out. I hope that helps. But I mean, sometimes life is what you plan to do. And sometimes life is what happens to you along the way. And you say, you know, I should adapt. Yeah, that's super fascinating because it seems like with all the previous experiences, it all like tied together to create like it all tied together. Yeah. Now yeah. you're in this role where you're, you know, incorporating a lot of those experiences and skill sets, but you didn't know that that would be the case until you got here. Better be lucky than good, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story. Maybe from all of that, from all your years of trial and error, do you have any like major tip or like one main takeaway from all that for any science enthusiast that wants to make a position and a career out of their love for research and discovery? Yes, the world is wide and broad. And no matter what you've learned when you were in undergrad or grad school, and you've been told sort of, you know, your niche or your corner of the world is materials characterization or it's catalysis or it's looking at uh, one esoteric measurement for specific proteins or something. That's just your training. You know, that's what you trained on. But you don't have to be that. You are not fated in some way. You don't have to spend the next 30 years doing that if it's not your utter passion. You should always take a couple of minutes every day or week to self-reflect and say, first, am I having fun? Clearly, I'm having fun, which is great. But not everybody is in science roles. You may not be enjoying what you're doing. and You may not feel like you're being pressured, that you're being, you know, you're learning, that you're growing. If that's not the case, you should ask yourself first principles. What am I good at? What makes me happy? And is there another way? And the answer is, oh, my God. <laughs> Academia is the alternative career, not industry. 85% of people go to industrial, government, or data type roles. 15% stay as professors. So think about how broad the world is. I have friends who graduated school with me who are lawyers, friends who are in investment banks, friends who are working in companies like me, friends who are running material science formulations cascades. I have a friend who literally makes diapers for a living, not like hand boutique, (laughs) but, you know, runs like a materials absorbent science lab that improves what babies live in and work in so they don't get infections. That's awesome. I have friends who work for nonprofits. I have friends who work in vaccines. I have friends who work data science viz, who, you know, just want to show people how data can be beautiful. I have a friend who's a scientific artist who literally makes art and pieces for the front of journals and the front of presentations. The world is big. So just consider that, you know, your training as a a scientist or as a, you know, degree holder and, and fancy education person prepares you for a broad canvas, not for a narrow place. I love that. And I'm glad you really emphasize the importance of reflection there in addition to kind of really scoping out what all the options are, because I try to harp on that a lot too with the other episodes. So I think it's super important. And again, we we really appreciate you joining us today, Mike. This was an awesome discussion and I'm excited to see Tetra Science continue to grow. Thank you, Puneet, David. Um, and if I may, because it's fun, can I ask you guys a question? Sure. Sure. <laughs> What's most exciting to you about this sort of bridge between science and tech? And where do you see it going? Yeah, no, I think that we are all but a culmination of our experiences. And I feel like I'm getting 40 years of experiences every time I get to talk to each of our experts. And so personally, I think that beyond just sharing it with everyone else, the simple like reflections that I get to make about my personal development from your experiences, I try to instill in my life and like you said, everything will be customized at the end of it. And so it's not that I'm going to try to replicate your life because that sounds like a lot of work. We're different people. <laughs> but I think that your experiences are so valuable and it helps me like cut out a lot of 
things that maybe you would have thought about differently if you do that. In the end, they probably wouldn't give you a job if you had to go through all these hoops. So I think that that just gives me an outlook on life. And then I get to share it with the rest of our community. And so everybody else gets to also learn from these experiences and try to make the career that they want and have the impact that they desire in life. Awesome answer. What do you think, Puneet? I really resonated with your story because you mentioned kind of that med school route, right? Wanting to be a doctor. And then for me, I was always on the fence. I I knew I, I was good at science and math and my mom is a doctor. And when we went to India, she had a friend who like runs and owns a hospital. Um, and I went in for a procedure and immediately mm. the smell was too overwhelming. I like left. You're like, no doctor. <laughs> yeah. And so that that's where the doctor route kind of like was set to the wayside. But I ended up in the medical device industry at the end of the day. There you go. Um, and so it's similar, right? And had to jump through a lot of hoops to get there, you know, had different experiences in other industries aviation, polymers, et cetera, but found my way back to medical devices because I wanted to make a positive impact on people. And so one thing that I that seems to be a commonality with the guests that we've interviewed is that really a lot of this innovation happens at intersections between two different industries, right? Like the frontiers of research. Totally. Always interfaces. Exactly. Yep. Always interfaces. And so I think that is kind of where the focus should be, or, you know, that's just something that where I would encourage other students to to really see if they can get involved in that in that type of research. And that's where I'm trying to find my professional development and growth opportunities as well within the medical device industry is, you know, how can I combine my materials background with biologic space, for example, you know, sure. and, and see like, how can we find innovation in that space? And then when you're talking about bridging science and tech, I just think that, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, et cetera, will just continue to make more and more of an impact in, in this material science industry. So it's important to kind of get that background. And I know David's done a lot of that and I'm I'm learning the basics of it, but really just trying to develop that skill set because I think that'll be pivotal as well. You know, if you can just continue to build your foundation in a, in a wide variety of areas, then you can kind of help accelerate innovation for the company that you work for. Excellent answers, both of you. You guys are clearly dyed-in-the-wool podcast hosts who have done this a lot of times (laughs) and have thought about this deeply. So I I applaud you and thank you for those answers. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for joining us. This is super fun. And I love that you were able to ask us questions too. Like, I know you have that podcast experience, so you were a natural. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, can't help it. (laughs) It's sort of in me. (laughs) Thank you. Appreciate it, guys. As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, I've done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy, includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep, and mentorship from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below. And if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there.